0: open your Bibles, if you would please, then to the book of James. And we are in chapter one, because we just started this series. And we're going to be looking this morning at verses five through eight. I think most of you know what it's like to search for a church to attend when you go into a new community or you make a move. And the feeling of awkwardness of visiting a new church, wondering if people will be friendly, wondering if you'll fit in. Maybe there are some of you here who are doing that very thing today. And I hope that if you are a guest today that you sense that you are welcomed and that we would love to have you continue with us. I, I, I hope when people come to Gateway, first of all, they sense a commitment and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the first thing they sense. But if there's a genuine love for Christ, there will be a genuine love for other people as well. It's infectious. You can't help that. There was a time in the life of our family when we relocated to Durham, North Carolina for a couple of years so I could work on my doctoral degree at Southeastern Seminary. So I was on a sabbatical from actively pastoring. And for the first time in our married lives, my wife and I found ourselves looking for a church to attend with our children. I was really excited about this because it was an opportunity to show my congregation back in Hendersonville uh, we, we are faithful to serve in a church, and to be there, and, and to support the ministry, not because we're pastors, but because we're people of God. We're, we're Christians. This is what, what Christians do, and, and, and just because I'm a pastor isn't the reason I'm there all the time, and so forth. So I was looking forward to this, and we would go to a couple churches. We would go to a, uh, to a church for a couple of weeks, and then we'd go to another church for a couple of weeks, and we were kind of taking the opportunity to look at different kinds of churches. And we, Who has that opportunity when they're pastoring, right? But you know, most people when they are visiting churches are kind of shy, right? They kind of hang back and wait for people to greet them and they they take a while to step forward. But when you've been a pastor for a while, those inhibitions are not the same. You feel more comfortable in the situation than most people. I mean, it's your wheelhouse. That's what you do all the time. And I sort of learned this about myself when we visited churches—that I was really quick to engage people in conversation, to ask questions. I would jump into Sunday school discussions in an animated way, even though people were looking around, thinking, "Who is this guy?" You know, that showed up and he's—he's he's answering questions right away. So apparently, I am told, I get more intense in situations than I realize. So we were on our way to a new church one morning, and and Rena said to me before we got there, she said, you know, Greg, you're not the pastor of these churches that we're visiting. And I was like, what do you mean? She said, well, you know, just pump the brakes a little. I mean, you're calling a lot of attention to us, and you're, you're starting to embarrass the children. And I'm like, okay, I'll, you know, I'll just observe. I'll just observe. So we got to Sunday school, and Rena and I and the other girls, uh, the, the older girls are there, and we're in a large circle in a large classroom, and it's pretty full. And the Sunday school teacher that morning was a psychology professor from UNC Chapel Hill. And he started out the lesson with a question. He said, as Christians, we are all on a journey. And I probably could have known by the way he said journey, you know, a little breathy that he was going to kind of milk this a little bit. He says, some choose this path and some choose that path. However, is it the end of the journey that matters? Or is it the journey itself? Well, as many of you know, the idea of the end of the journey versus the journey itself is a very postmodern distinction. In postmodern theology, it's all about the journey, not about the end of the journey. And of course, I couldn't imagine that this teacher at a Baptist church would suggest that it's about the journey and not the end. His question hung in the air just a little too long and nobody was answering and he was being quiet. So I just laughed out loud and I said, well, it had better be about the end of the journey, right? Not the beginning or not the, not the journey itself. There's a way that seems right unto a person, but the end thereof is the way of death. Well, there was this awkward silence for a couple of seconds. And I looked around and it slowly dawned on me that my answer was not what he was expecting to hear. So he spent the better part of the next five minutes trying to turn what he was intending to say into something that was not going to offend the visitor uh, that had answered in the room. And I looked over at Rena and she was like, you know. (laughs) And my children were studying their Bibles very hard. But in my defense, okay, come on. Jesus himself says in Matthew 7, 13-14, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way hard that leads to life. And those who find it... Are few. You see that there's three parts to a path. There's the gate, there's the entrance to the path, there's the path itself, but there's the end of the path. And Jesus' own words indicate that really what matters is where the path leads in the end. In fact, the way that leads to destruction is easy. I mean, it's not hard to end up in hell. The other way, according to Jesus himself, is hard. But The only way, it's the only way that leads to life. Which path are you on this morning? Now, the two paths metaphor is the essence of wisdom literature in the Bible. I'm talking about books like Job, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, some of the Psalms. You are always in wisdom literature, when you're reading it, presented with two different paths the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter under full day. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. You see that? Two paths a path of light that leads to full day, a path that leads to darkness. Wisdom in the Bible is not simply teaching about the wise path to take. Wisdom in the Bible, when we see it, is about the wise path in contrast to the foolish path. Foolishness in Proverbs is not stupidity. Foolishness is not following God's will. Foolishness is refusing to walk on the path that God created for us and walking on another path instead. And we see this tension in wisdom literature between the wise and the foolish paths, the righteous and the wicked paths. We see it all throughout Proverbs. For instance, you read, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Not this way, but that way. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. The heart of him who has understanding seeks knowledge, but the mouth of fools feeds on folly. The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. And we can go on and on. But this is wisdom literature. It's a kind of literature that says, this is how God designed the universe. This is what pleases him. So walk in his way, not your way. Keep to his path, not the path of the world. Now, what we've already seen in the book of James is that James styles his letter like wisdom literature. James writes in these short, pithy sayings, often using poetic language and metaphors. He moves from topic to topic, just like wisdom literature in the Hebrew Scriptures, the the Old Testament, and like the wisdom literature that James was no doubt familiar with outside of the Old Testament. I mentioned uh, the wisdom of Ben Sirah and uh, the wisdom of Solomon a couple of weeks ago. These were books that Jews would have read. They were kind of like our devotional material today, based on what the Scripture says. James appears in the book of Acts as the lead pastor of the Jerusalem church. And as the pastor of that church, James was able to take the Hebrew scriptures and the new teachings of the apostles and the teaching of Jesus and instruct these new believers who had embraced Christ as their Messiah, as their Savior, to live up to their faith teaching them not only to embrace Jesus, but to act a certain way, to live a certain way. But at the beginning of the book, beginning of the letter, we find that James is writing to the 12 tribes, that's the Jewish believers, who are in the dispersion. That means they've been scattered, they've been dispersed throughout the Roman Empire, especially because of persecution. We studied this a couple of weeks ago in the introduction to James. They went north and east looking for communities where their families would not be threatened, and they were still only sharing the gospel with Jews. The first thousands and thousands of church members in the early church were Jewish church members. They went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, according to Acts 11. So think about this. James is pastoring these believers, thousands of them, in Jerusalem, teaching them about how to be born-again Christians, and now many of them are scattered, So he sends out this letter to be copied and shared. And he writes this letter as one giving Jewish wisdom the way the Jews would have expected it. Don't go this way, but go that way. So last week, we worked through the first of these little sections of wisdom In James chapter one, he says in verses two through four, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet with trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Now, the negative path is not stated here, but it is certainly implied, and we'll see it actually echoed throughout the rest of the letter of James. What do we tend to do when we meet trials of various kinds? Sometimes those various kinds of trials come all at once. Our natural response is not joy. Our natural response is to be discouraged and try to figure out how to get out of the trial as quickly as possible. But James says, no, actually we should be filled with joy when we enter the trial because it's producing something in us that we could have never produced ourselves, namely patience. And what is more, we should be willing to remain in the trial until God accomplishes the work that he wants it to have in our lives. So it will lead us to greater spiritual maturity. That's wisdom. And we might not have ever thought of that for ourselves. But this is what the Bible is teaching us. There's two paths. In fact, we could make a proverb out of this teaching if we wanted to. We could say, the wise are joyful in times of trials, and learn patience while remaining in them, but the foolish become bitter and seek a way out. Okay, that's not the scripture. Okay, that's Greg Sykes turning uh, James 2, 1, 2 through 4 into a proverb. But I'm just illustrating this for you. This is the kind of thing that James is doing in the letter. So, not surprisingly, the first piece of wisdom James offers these scattered persecuted believers is about trials, they're suffering. And as we saw last week, when when you're going through trials, embrace them joyfully, not because you love pain and suffering, that's messed up, but because of what they are doing in you. God never wastes any of your pain, any of your trials. He is always using using them lovingly as a good and wise and sovereign father would to grow you and mature you. Now, this morning, we're going to move to the second piece of wisdom that James offers in his letter. And namely, that is, ask God for wisdom. And it's no surprise that wisdom is showing up right at the beginning of the book here. Right after he deals with trials, he talks about wisdom. Ask God for wisdom sincerely. So he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask God who generously, who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him, but let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, let me back up for a second. Look back at verse 4. James says that the ultimate goal of persevering joyfully in time of trial is so that you might be perfect and complete. That's spiritually mature. And notice, lacking in nothing. That is, not lacking in any of those virtues that God is building in your life through trials. But then James says right away, if any of you lacks... Wisdom, you see that? That's the same word. So is there a connection between persevering joyfully under trials and asking God for wisdom? I think there is. Because we need wisdom. We need to know what path to choose in many contexts, but probably we need, we need wisdom most when we are under pressure, when we are experiencing trials. And what is more, we pray more when we're suffering, don't we? Don't we learn to pray more? Don't we get on our knees more? Don't we cry out to God more when things are going wrong? God knows that too. Now, I do not think that James is speaking only about trials in verses 5 through 8. I mean, James is episodic. In fact, his subject in these verses is not trials. If you look at the subject matter, the subject matter is seeking God sincerely. That's what we'll see this morning. But the two certainly go hand in hand. And if you look at it this way, what James has done so far is to acknowledge the fact that these believers have trials and then he says, you need wisdom. And I'm going to tell you how to get it. Now, why do I use the word sincerely? It's because I think it summarizes everything that James is saying in these four verses about how we should be asking for wisdom. Sincerity means truly, honestly, earnestly. The older we get, the more we learn to fake it. It's true. Uh, Jesus, I think, when he says to have the faith of a child, is trying to refer to the fact that children don't know that they have to put on something yet. I mean, they start learning it as they get older, but a very sincere question from a child is just a very honest question. They ask because they want to know. They do things because they really mean to do them. And I think you'll see this, As we go throughout this text, James says, when we need wisdom from God, the faith to obediently choose the good path that God intended, we must ask sincerely. And we do it in the following way First, we must be aware of our need for wisdom. We have to be aware of our need for wisdom. Do you know you need wisdom? He says, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, he's not saying, you know, if any of you so happens needs wisdom. and I just want to get a show of hands, James is saying, you know. Anybody, Any? do we have a few here that need wisdom? No, that's not what he's saying. It's more like he's saying, because you are going to need wisdom. We might even be able to translate this, when any of you lacks wisdom. Now, the word is if in the Greek language. I'm not trying to change what the Greek... It says here. But when it's used with imperatives or commands in the Greek language, the word if can have this kind of contingency, you know, if, if this ever possibly happens. But the word if can also convey a common human experience because this always happens. That's why, for instance, Paul says to the Colossian believers in Colossians 3.1, if you have therefore been raised with Christ, seek the things which are above. He's talking to believers. He's not saying, now, some of you are raised with Christ and some of you aren't. He actually means, if you have been therefore raised with Christ and you have been, then seek the things which are above. So here in James 1.5, James could be saying to us, if any of you lacks wisdom and you will, or you do. Besides that, I doubt anyone here would say, I never need wisdom. You know, I've got enough already. You know, husbands, you know, I just asked my wife, if my, my wife can give wisdom, or my husband can give you wisdom, or I can give wisdom to my children. We don't need wisdom. No, all of us know we need wisdom. We, we come to points where we need to know which path to take. But notice there are two parts to wisdom. It's knowing what path to take and the courage and faithfulness to follow that path. How many times have we known the right path to take, but we took the wrong one instead because we loved the wrong path? And listen, the truth is we need wisdom from God every single day of our lives, but we've we've become comfortable with what we know. Most of us have heard lots of preaching. We've heard lots of teaching. We've read our Bibles. We've grown up in church. When a question comes up about a path to take, we figure, you know, I've got this. I know what to do. I've been a Christian for a long time. And in a way, there's some truth in that because There are spiritual choices that I have had to make so often and and God already took me through that uh, question mark years ago and taught me a lot of things and I, I know what the right path is anyway and we don't have to reason in our minds sometimes to know that's not the right path and I know this is. So there's some truth in that kind of thing. But especially in our world today where things are changing so fast and old sins are always dressed up in new garments we need to continually seek God for wisdom, opening his word, reading it, struggling to understand the best path and having the courage to take it. Do you notice that in this picture, both paths seem about the same? I didn't choose an illustration that made one path seem bright and inviting and the other one dark and foreboding because that's not what paths are like. No one is going to say, oh, that looks like there's a lot of danger up ahead and a lot of darkness and destruction waiting in my life. I'm going to take that one. No, nobody does that, not willingly anyway, not sober. In fact, if anything, I should have made the godly path, the one I was putting on the left, um, to look less inviting somehow, less desirable. That's a more real scenario. The wrong path is always easier, it seems. That is why there is a way that seems right to a man, but the end of that path is the way of death. That is why we have to trust God. We have to trust God to know what path leads to life. We don't always see the end of the path. Which path leads to godliness? Which path leads to holiness? Because in our own human wisdom and spiritual weakness, we will not always choose the right path. And at first, the two paths may seem about the same, But as my pastor in Minnesota would always remind us, when you choose the beginning of the path, you are simultaneously adopting the end of the path. And God knows what that end is that you cannot see. You know, some years ago, uh, there was a recent graduate of uh, Bob Jones University. I remember hearing this when I was a graduate student there. He was a business student who was so excited to land a job in a company right out of college and he was sent on a business trip with some of the older businessmen. And when the day was over, all the men wanted to go to a club where they would be drinking and immorality. And you can use your imagination what kind of club that might have been. Well on the way there, this young graduate was wrestling with God. You know, Lord, I would never go to a place like this but I'm new here, I need to be accepted, I want to build friendships with these men, I really need this job. I mean, I could go in there, not participate, not really pay attention to anything, and, 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 and just you know keep my relationship with them. And, and, and to put it in that light, you might see why somebody might say, well, in, in this scenario, I can adopt this path, I can go down this path. But he continued to pray in his mind as the company car grew closer and closer to the place. And when they got there, the young man knew in his heart, this is not what God wants me to do. So the men were like, hey, you coming in? He says, no, I I think I'm just going to wait in the car. Well, the others were really perturbed by this. And they kept pressuring him. And he said, look, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. And this is not something that God wants me to do. I am totally happy to hang out here in the car. I'll drive everybody home at the end. I'll I'll take you all back to the hotel. He's making it as nice as possible. Well, those men went in for a few hours and came back. And oh, the grief these drunken men gave that young guy, swearing at him and teasing him and making fun of him and really giving him one of the worst nights of his life. By the way, you have to know this. Those who want to sin will always try to get more people to go with them. Proverbs tells us this in Proverbs 1 when it gives us wisdom. When you refuse for the right reasons, they will be convicted and there will be a reaction when godliness invades ungodliness. But he gladly bore that persecution because he knew that God had given him the wise path to take. He was confident that he was on the right path. Now, this story is actually it actually has a sweeter ending. Apparently, after the business trip, the owner of the company overheard some of these businessmen teasing this guy and and talking about him and laughing behind his back because of what he had done on the trip, not going into that place. And the, the owner of the company started asking questions about what happened. And soon after that, the owner called the young believer into his office and he said, you know what? I need men like you with conviction who will not back down under pressure. He said, I know you're young and you haven't been here long, but I would like to promote you to the head of the division of this company. And long story short, he became the boss of those other men. It's like a modern story of Joseph in Egypt or Daniel in Babylon, both of them who were men, by the way, in Scripture, whom God had given extraordinary wisdom Now, not all stories have those kinds of endings. In fact, perhaps most stories don't have those kinds of endings. We can't be naive about that. But it's a reminder to us that God knows the path we should take even if we will often wrestle with it. We will be sincere in our seeking God for wisdom when we know we desperately need God to show us what path to take. So we have to confess our dependency upon God. We must be aware of our need for wisdom. Secondly, we must also know the one who dispenses wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. Now, literally, the Greek text reads this way. It says, let him ask God, the one giving to all generously and not finding fault, and it shall be given to him. So, the main sentence is, let him ask God, and it shall be given to him. But placed in between this simple, familiar promise that we find often in the Bible, ask God and he will supply, we find this remarkable description of this God from whom we seek wisdom. First of all, notice God is described as one who is a giver to all. He doesn't just give stingily either. He gives generously. Now, that's an interesting word. It it literally means, you ready for this? It means simply or clearly. It, It doesn't mean like giving a lot. It means simply, you know those advertisements that you see all the time that seem to promise this deal that is too good to be true? But when you read the fine print, you discover it's actually too true to be good. Like 50% off! And you start heading over, and you find out 50% off your second pair when you spend more than $100 on these select styles every other Thursday. You know, it goes on. Or lease a brand new car, only $179 per month for 24 months. Taxes, title tags, and dealer fees, extra $1,000 due at signing, 25 cents per mile if you drive over 10,000 miles in a year. Now, I know that not all advertising is like that, but we're wise to read the fine print. But this word means that when God gives generously, it means he gives with no fine print. He gives like he says he gives, sincerely. In fact, the next word helps to make the same point, without reproach, which means that God doesn't find fault. He doesn't hold back or berate or criticize us. God doesn't ever say to us, oh, it's you again. (laughs) What is it you want this time? Did you mess up again? Sometimes we imagine God saying that to us. That's not the kind of God he is. When will you ever learn you expect me to keep answering the same question over and over? You need wisdom again in this area? A friend of mine was passing through town on Friday, and I, find out, I found out in a text that he was eating at Chipotle with his, his, uh, his uh, in-laws. And uh, I was, like, going right by uh, around that time, so I surprised him. I went, into the rest, I went into Chipotle and came up from behind and grabbed his shoulders. You know, you have to be really certain that it's the person you think it is, by the way, when you, uh, when you do that. Um, now, his, his in-laws are some of the nicest people you will ever meet. And I've, I've known them for a long time. And his father-in-law was like, have you eaten yet? And I was like, no, 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 it's okay. I, I just, I don't want to interrupt your lunch. I just want to say, hi, I haven't seen you in a while. And, you know, just wanted to, to stop by. I'm not, not trying to be here for long. He was like, no, 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 no. You let me buy you something. And I'm like, well, you know, you don't have to do that. No, no, no. I insist. Stand up. Come up here. Well, I follow dutifully to the counter uh, and he's talking to me the whole time, making sure I get exactly what I want. He's already got his wallet out, and he's paying for it. And, and, and they're handing it, and he's like, no, you go sit down. You go sit down. I'll finish taking care of this. I'll bring it to the table. And I was thinking to myself later, wow, you know, I, I felt like an honored guest all of a sudden with this man because he was so generous and kind in his giving, There was no word or action or idea he expressed that did not communicate a perfect, transparent desire to fully give me something with no expectations. You know what? That's how God wants to give to us. That's who he is. He wants to bless us with wisdom. He wants us to know his will. He's not hiding it from us. We all know people of whom we would say, you know, he would give you the shirt off his back or she would do anything for you is that the way you view God? Because that's the way the scripture presents him. Because if we're going to be sincere and are asking God for wisdom, we need to first be keenly aware that we need wisdom, but then we need to know where wisdom comes from. We need to be convinced that our time in prayer for wisdom is not wasted because we have a God who delights to give to his children. A God who is transparent in His giving. A God who never tires of our needing it. Isn't that a blessing? God never is tired of our needing blessing and and wisdom. A God who dispenses wisdom with infinite grace. He's given us His Word. He's given us the Holy Spirit to lead us. When we ask Him to give us wisdom, to know what moral path to take, He will give us His will. But there's a final way we must ask if we would ask sincerely. We have to be aware of our need for wisdom. We have to know the one who dispenses wisdom. But thirdly, we have to ask God with conviction for wisdom. And this is his theme for the rest of the text, verses 6 through 8, asking with this conviction, this confidence. James says in verse 6, but... However, there's a contradiction. Here's the other path, you see. Let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Wow. Nothing. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Now, if there is fine print in this offer for wisdom, this is it. But notice, it is not fine print on God's part. It's fine print on our part. James says, let him simply ask a God who simply gives. You need a simple asker who's asking like a child who really means it. Asking a God who really means it when he gives. Because God gives generously to those who ask for wisdom with no strings attached. But if you ask, you really need to be asking for real. If you pray for wisdom to know the will of God, then you really must want to know the will of God. God is not interested in religious theater. He is not rushing to our aid just because we bowed our heads and closed our eyes and we're murmuring a prayer if we're just going through motions. If you already basically have your mind made up what you're going to do anyway. And in this insincerity, this insincerity is what James is attempting to correct in this section of wisdom. So, in verses six to eight, James gives two instructions. Notice that first of all, he says, "Ask in faith." In other words, ask, believing that we have a generous God who freely gives without stinginess or reproach to the one who comes to Him. Faith, of course, is that mechanism by which we see what we cannot see. We see what's real. We see what's above. James is saying that we have to truly believe that we need wisdom, that God is the one who will give it to us if we ask Him, and then we just have to ask Him for real. We have to be who we say we are, living up to our faith. Unfortunately, however, we are all guilty of living out of a facade. When I say we're all guilty, that I'm not choosing those words very flippantly. We, we, as we get older, we, we put on the veneer. We, we have this facade We pretend to be more than we are, going through the motions of prayer so that other people will notice us or when it's expected of us, but not simply to ask God. It seems like such a basic thing, but don't we all struggle with this at times, putting our Christian lives on autopilot and going through motions, but never really engaging with God. But our simplicity, our genuineness, our, our transparency in asking God for wisdom needs to be as profound as God's simplicity in answering. So James says, we must ask in faith. And then he says, we must ask without doubting. And from this part of the verse, verse 6 to the end of verse 8, every word that James writes has to do with how not to ask. All that he has set up to this point has been said in 23 words. I counted them in the Greek New Testament, okay? 23 words to tell us what to do to ask. But then James spends 31 words, nearly 60% of the text, to describe the mirror image of asking, how not to ask. James says that the one asking in faith must ask with no doubting. It's, It's a verb form that means to hesitate, to go back and forth, to not be able to make up your mind. It's sometimes used in a very positive light, like discernment, like like trying to winnow out something and and think through a problem. But here it's used as doubting, as something we shouldn't do because we're we're coming to a God who knows. So there ought to be no hesitation. It's expressed in Elijah's challenge to the people of Israel on Mount Carmel. Remember, he says to them, how long will you go limping between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. Make up your mind. Two ways, only two, only ever two. The same word is used in a positive way to describe Abraham's faith in Romans 4.20, where Paul says that Abraham did not waver, there's our word, he did not waver in unbelief concerning the promise of God, but grew strong in his faith. The word doubting expresses an internal wrestling match within our minds and hearts. Are we really going to trust God? Do we really want to know his will? Do we really want to know which direction to go? James says you cannot pray to God in this way. When you come to prayer, you have to be all in. You have to be desperate for wisdom, to know God's will, convinced that what God is going to give you is something graciously from His hand because He's ready to pour it out upon His children, and you come fully ready to receive God's wisdom, His choice, His will. In fact, before the heart has even discerned to the will of God, before you go to pray, before you say, "Okay, Lord, show me Your Word, what I should do," your heart is already saying, "Yes, I'm going to obey whatever God says." This is not to suggest that the key to get God to answer our prayers is a lot of emotion or a long time necessarily pouring out many words to God, you can do all of those things and still not be sincere. The key to answered prayer is the generosity and sincerity of God who knows when we really mean it, who responds to the humblest prayer of any child when that prayer is real. And to really drive the point home, James gives two pictures of what the doubter looks like. First, he says the doubter is like a wave. The wave of the, a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. If you look up this verse, you'll find dozens of illustrations of it. I accidentally showed you one a second ago, but I'll show you it now. Uh, here's a wave with this verse on it. You find this, if you, if you Google it on, on the internet, it, it looks like you could ride this wave, right? I mean, I, as soon as I saw it, I imagined somebody surfing uh, on, on that wave. And, and then this one is even more dramatic. But I'm not sure this is exactly what James has in mind. Others imagine this stormy sea, like the waves that were tossing Jesus and his disciples on the Sea of Galilee before Jesus calmed the storm. But that's probably unnecessary also. What James probably has in mind is just any ordinary day on the sea. Maybe he's thinking about the Sea of Galilee. That's where he grew up. The waves on the sea are never fixed. That's the point. They're constantly shifting. The contours are always changing. Why? It depends on which way the wind is blowing and how hard it's blowing. There are those who will not place their faith solely in God and seek for his will because they're waiting to see which way the wind is blowing, which way public opinion is moving, which way the people think whom they are trying to impress. Instead of going with consistency and determination in the direction the Lord is pointing, they are always holding out, waiting to see if there's a better option. There's another illustration that he gives at the end of this text in verse 8. He says, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. The, the word literally is double-souled man, S-O-U-L-E-D. A double-souled man. It has to do where his loyal, with, with where his loyalties lie. When Jesus says in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters because he cannot give his heart to two things at the same time. This is the kind of person that James has in mind, one who is double-minded, double-souled, double-hearted. In 2 Corinthians 6, Paul says, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial... Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What art agreement has the temple of God with idols? He gives us several options here, several paths that are two separate paths. The double-minded is the kind of person he has in mind, Paul here. Paul here. Um, those who will not commit themselves to the will of the Lord because they do not love the will of the Lord. It's a heart matter. This is the person of whom Jave says in verse 7 For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. And I wonder if in any way this describes what you're wrestling with this morning. There are two ways set before you one of them is God's will, the other is the wrong path. It might be a major life decision, it might be a temporary decision. It might be a moral decision. What are you going to believe? What are you going to do? It might be an ethical decision. What's the best response to have? Maybe for some of you, it's a decision that the Lord brought into your life this week. A lot of you were at the the, the campus this week, and you sat under a lot of preaching at our Bible conference. And you might be wrestling with a decision right now. But normal pressures and the ebb, of flow of life, the ebb and flow of life have, have brought you to this point. How are you going to choose? James says, ask God for wisdom sincerely. Recognize you need wisdom. You need to know God's will, which means you're reading the scriptures and, and looking for those principles and commands that will guide you in the right direction." and know the one who dispenses wisdom. Look to God as a loving father who is waiting to give you patiently and graciously everything you need for life and godliness. He is a God who will, through his spirit, lead you on the right path if you really want to know it. And finally, ask God with conviction for wisdom. Cry out to him fully, seeking to know his will, ready to obey it. Pray with a love for God alone and a corresponding desire to serve Him and Him alone. Don't worry about what the world thinks. Don't worry how politically incorrect you might be. Don't worry about how uh, unwoke you may sound or even what other Christian friends may think. Be who you say you are. And God will pour out upon you lavishly his guidance and assurance as you seek him. That's living up to your faith. And that's the simple obedience that James is calling us to have in this letter. Father, thank you.